Hear now a word from Matthew six nineteen through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Chancel Choir. Beautiful arrangement of that anthem. So, let's begin with the question de jour, the question of the day. Where's our treasure? And that's an important question because where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also a good thing to remember when life brings us to those places where we are most likely to lose heart. Heart. Let's ponder the word and the concept for a while. The Greek word for heart is cardia, K-A-R-D-I-A, cardia, cardiologist. Some of our other words come from there. Most of the inner organs of the human body, the throat, the nostrils, kidneys, the digestive system, the heart, have specific meanings in Scripture and the Bible. And unlike Western cultures, which associate primarily the heart with feelings and emotions, Near Eastern cultures think of the heart in terms of thought and thinking and reasoning and planning. The heart characterizes human beings first and foremost as rational beings that are susceptible to learning and teaching. The heart also pertains to human conduct and human actions. Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes and the Old Testament, one of the most fascinating books in the Bible, I think. Ecclesiastes presents the most comprehensive account of the heart in the Old Testament. In his view, the heart is that with which a human being perceives the world around herself, around himself, and responds to it. In that sense, Ecclesiastes seems to use the word heart in close analogy to the Greek concept of our mind. However, heart implies more than mind because ultimately it expresses the human desire, the human striving for the good life. God has placed eternity in the heart, the desire for eternity, the awareness of it, also with the knowledge of our own finitude and the knowledge of our wisdom being not complete. Or in other words, God makes human beings aware of the infinite. And that throws us back on our own limitations, our own finiteness. Now in the Old Testament, the heart speaks of rational kind of thinking. And in the New Testament, there are similar concepts there as well that we need to think about. Rational thought and intentions. Evil intentions come from the heart, we are told. And what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And those who are pure in heart will be blessed. But those who have evil intentions of the heart are tantamount to sinful deeds. And these inclinations and these deeds cannot be hid from the presence of God. The heart is the place where people understand the true meaning of the law, of God's law, and true forgiveness. It comes from the heart. 
The heart is also, in the New Testament, often associated with courage. We hear expressions like, take heart. And we are praised for not losing heart. Courage is associated with heart. And we've talked a lot about courage in the Bible study that I've been facilitating for the past few weeks. And several of you have been in there. We've talked about the role of having heart. Take heart. Take courage. How important that is. To hold something or someone in one's heart is to treasure that thing, to treasure that person. Nelson Mandela said, if you talk to folks in a language they understand, that goes to their head. But if you speak to folks in their own language, that goes to their heart. One of my favorite nonfiction books was written by an Emory physician about 30 years ago, and some of you may remember, may know, may have been to see Dr. John Stone. He was a professor in the Emory University School of Medicine. He was a cardiologist. And in the introduction to his book, he says that all of us are born with two hearts. There's the physical heart, the fist-sized pump that looks like a ghost on a chest x-ray, and the other heart is a metaphorical heart, the one that pumps no blood at all. He said, I'm speaking now of the heart as a synonym for sensibility. Sensitivity is the seed of our emotions, if you will. The heart about which Pascal writes, the heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. That heart, he said. All fully rational people presume that our emotions come from the electrical and biochemical corridors of the brain. But for many writers, he said, and for many cardiologists, this proposition is difficult to accept. Was it not William Faulkner who said that the writer must leave no room in his workshop for anything but the old verities of truth, the old truths of the heart, love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. Hence, he says, the metaphorical heart, the literal heart is at the very center of our lives, he writes. Without it, we would obviously be dead. But the metaphorical heart tempers the literal one and adds an extra dimension. Without a metaphorical heart, we'd all be in the position of the tin man and the Wizard of Oz. The cutout heart that so thrilled the tin man is precisely what we would all miss tomorrow morning if we woke up without our metaphorical hearts. And he says, that might be worse than being dead. Jacob Armstrong, he's the writer, the creator of the stewardship program that we've chosen for this year. Treasure is the name of that. He says that one Saturday, he and his wife packed up everything they owned, loaded it in their vehicle, everything except for some clothes and a few pieces of luggage, and took it down and placed it in one of the storage units, 10-foot by 20-foot storage units. And after they packed all that stuff, they found it fit into that size of a unit. They closed the door. They put the lock on it, and they walked away. Now, he said, for a while, we came back, and we checked on it, made sure the lock was okay, made sure our stuff was still there. But after a while, we just sort of forgot about it and uh, left it there and didn't go back for about three months, didn't need one single item, he said, from that storage unit. So what do we really treasure Do we completely comprehend that our treasure is not found in our stuff? 
I've read, and maybe the number's changed a little bit since I read this, that there are over 2.3 billion square feet of usable, rentable storage space in the United States. Think about that. We have so much stuff. Our houses, our apartments, the places where we dwell won't hold all of it. And everywhere you look, it seems like they're building these self-storage units. And sometimes I get this crazy notion that when I've had about all of myself that I can stand, I need to just store myself in one of those self-storage units for a little while until, until things get better. But our treasure is not found in our stuff. And the stewardship emphasis, we're talking about treasure this year. We, we begin today, and we'll talk about it for four weeks in different ways. In fact, he said when Armstrong and his wife moved into their new home, they'd been staying with a family member for three months. They went back and got all of their stuff, and they needed it at that point. The couch, the refrigerator, the chairs, the tables, the beds, all those things. But he said what he learned throughout that whole process was that this stuff was not his real treasure. One of the commentaries that I looked at and read in preparation for today and for this series of sermons stated that one of the most notable characteristics of the human species is our proclivity to collect things. Humans everywhere collect treasures and assign status to one another based on what's been accrued, what's been acquired. In some societies, one is judged by one's livestock, and some by the possession of precious metals and rare stones. In a money economy, the financial assets become the primary goal for any who aspire to a higher status. Once achieved, this higher status can be displayed to the community. And we do this sometimes with luxury cars or spacious homes or rare jewelry or fine paintings to name just a few of the things. This view is, is so important. And I was thinking back to an earlier church and a neighborhood in that community where the premier neighborhood, and I won't name it, some of you may know of it, was where everybody sort of wanted to be and some of the younger families wanted to be there. And when they were able to get into these homes, they had a couple of pieces of really nice furniture in the picture window, but the rest of the house was pretty much empty. There was just something about that status, being in that neighborhood, being in that spacious, large house that made a statement that they thought were important, they thought was important. Now, these verses of our scripture lesson for today that Andrew read a moment ago challenge the equation of a person's worth with their possessions, their acquisitions. Treasured clothing, vulnerable to insects. Wooden chest and books subject to destruction by worms and things that cannot be destroyed or eaten, so to speak, can be stolen, taken away from us. The list could have been extended. Livestock becomes diseased. Grain that we have stored away becomes spoiled. And the stock market takes a plunge. So those who assess their own worth and that of others in regard to their physical treasures, their acquired treasures, render themselves exceedingly vulnerable to the ups and downs of this life. Jesus' followers are instructed to avoid such insecurity by latching on to an invulnerable treasure consisting of kindness performed and gifts given to others for the glory and the service of God. What do we really treasure? 
What is it that most folks really value when we come to the end of the road of life? As a pastor, I can think back of a lot of the opportunities and privileges I've had of being with folks in their last days and sometimes their last moments. And rarely in those days or in those moments do folks talk about what they have acquired on earth, the kind of treasure that moth and rust can corrupt and thieves can break in and steal. Folks talk about family and friends and moments when God seemed most real. They think about the children they've raised, the children they've taught, the mission trips and mission projects they've been a part of. They talk about memories being built, vacations and laughter, and they share these stories. Some of them are really funny and some of them are really sad, but they're all meaningful. They talk less about the money they made and more about the encounters they had with others and the promises they made to others, the commitments they made to other folk and to God. The scripture lesson teaches that our heart follows our treasure, not vice versa. It's easy to get those two mixed up. We sometimes want to flip that around, the stewardship sermon. And this series is a lot about what we're missing in our lives, but it's also about money. Jesus did talk about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God. So why did he do that? Why would Jesus talk about money? I mean, if he was a rabbi or a pastor in some places, that would get him in a lot of trouble if that's all he ever talked about. But he seemed to just talk about money a lot. On the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus is looking at the heart. He cares about the hearts of people. Jesus talks about money and treasures because he cares about our hearts what's going on internally, who we are. He knows no amount of money. He knows that money can, or too much money, or lack of money can stress our relationships. Money can cause division in and among people. Money and its pursuit can become cumbersome and burdensome and all-consuming. Those who've lost jobs or those who seem to have money difficulties all the time will tell you that it's not just a financial issue, it's an emotional issue, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's a spiritual issue. Jesus talks about money because he cares about our hearts, and it is our treasure that shows us our hearts. We usually think that where our heart is, our treasure will follow. We, we really believe that. But Jesus says it's the opposite. Where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And this is not just semantics. Jesus is not just playing with words or flipping words around to confuse us or confound us or trip us up. Jesus knows that what we spend our money on will become our treasure. Whether we want it to or not, it just seems to happen that way. Financial commitments require time and energy. They, they pull our hearts in directions that God perhaps never intended for any of us. But it happens. We buy houses that require a large percent of our income. We have no choice but to spend all of our time and energy paying for it. When we put our treasure into anything, our heart will follow. The Reverend Dr. Billy Graham was asked late in his life, if you could go back and do anything differently, what would you do? Would you do it differently? And his answer may surprise some folks. Surprised me a little bit when I read this. He said, yes, of course. I'd spend more time at home with my family and I'd study more and preach less. 
I would have taken or would not have taken so many speaking engagements. And when I'm counseling with folks who are thinking about becoming evangelists, I would have told them to guard their time and not feel like they had to do everything. Looking back over our lives, how have we invested most of our time and our energy and our money? When someone says to me that looking back over their lives, they have no regrets. They would not do anything differently. Two thoughts come to mind. The first is this person probably has crossed fingers behind their back. And the second is a word of caution. Don't ever buy a used car from this person. Who do we know who gets everything right the first time? Aren't there times when all of us would like a redo? And when it comes to investing and our treasure, if we didn't have any debts, if we didn't have any commitments, and if we could choose where to store up treasure, where would it be? And as we consider for a moment where we would store up treasure... Let's take a moment to realistically assess where our treasure is currently. Look into your own hearts. Hold that mirror in front of your soul. This is not for anybody else to know. It's for you to understand. Do we ever feel like our hearts are divided and pulled in different directions? Jesus tells us we have the opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. Where are we investing our time and our energy and our resources in the work of God in this world, the things of God? We find that our hearts no longer feel disconnected when we do this. But there's a connection to God. There's a lid that's taken off of our spiritual development and we become who God's called us to be. What beginning steps can we take? to lay up treasure in heaven, or if we're already doing that, what's our next step? What's God calling us to do after this? One of my favorite novels in my growing up years, my high school days, and I think I reread it and studied it again in college, a book called Silas Marner, written by a woman named George Eliot. And uh, couldn't use a woman's name back in that day and expect to sell any books, you know, so George Eliot, a woman, But she wrote about Silas Marner, a miserable man, a miserable man who treasured his gold above all else. That's what's important to him in this world. That's all he ever thought about, his gold coins and his treasure and his heart. Therefore, was kept under a loose brick near the fireplace until the day when a toddler, a little girl, literally crawled into his cottage. Reflecting on this novel, Georgia poet Sidney Lanier, and you'll remember him, the Lake Lanier Sidney Lanier, the Marshes of Glen Sidney Lanier, that Sidney Lanier, wrote a short prose piece. And he wrote this prose piece commenting on Silas Marner and what the book was really all about and, and who the author was and why she wrote like she did. He said, Marner now returns. He is dazed at beholding what appears to be another pile of gold on the familiar spot on the floor. And he takes this new treasure into his hungry heart and he brings up this little girl who grows into a beautiful woman and a faithful daughter to him. His whole character changes. And the harshness of his previous brutal misanthropy softens into something at least approaching humanity. And then Lanier said this, he said, now it's fairly characteristic of George Eliot that she constantly places before us 
lives which change in a manner of which this is typical. That is to say, she's constantly showing us intense and hungry spirits wasting their intensity and wasting their hunger on things that are not worthy. And then finding where love is worthy and thereafter loving larger loves and living larger lives. I love that expression. I had not heard it before. So let's take one more look at how we are investing our time, our energy, our resources. Are they causing us to love larger loves and live larger lives? A note of caution. Loving larger loves and living larger lives will sometimes lead to an enlarged heart. But that's not always a bad thing, is it? Amen.